Good morning. If you've got a Bible, if you would open up to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we continue our study through 1 Peter, and let's pray as we open it. Uh, Father, we're here today to to worship you. We're here because you've made us a kingdom and a community and and a new nation. Uh, as, As Christians, you've become our father. You've made us brothers and sisters, and so we're at home. We're at home with you. We're at home with each other. But we're living in a world where we feel very out of place where we feel alien at school and at work and in the community and for some even in our own homes. So today we pray that you would remind us of who we are and who you are and where we're headed. Help us to live here on this earth to serve and to speak and to do good even as we wait for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we open the word, we pray that you would guide us, that you would guide us into the right way to live, but more than that, that you would guide us to your son. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start by reading today's passage. We're going to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor." So Peter's been writing to the churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire. He's writing to teach them, and by extension to teach us, how to live in response to the gospel of Jesus that we've believed in a world that isn't our our home yet. So Peter opened this letter by calling the people who were reading it elect exiles or chosen exiles. They're people who were chosen by God but out of place in the world. And then again in chapter 1, verse 17, he calls the lives of Christians here a time of exile. And then in today's passage, for the third time, Peter calls us sojourners and exiles. So this must be an important theme in this book. Three times already, he said that this is who we are. Peter wants us to change the way that we view ourselves in the world around us. And this is really important because for those of us who've lived in the U.S. all of our lives, we probably can't remember a time when Christianity was thought of more poorly by the broader culture than it is right now. For a long time, it seemed like Christianity was at least somewhat respected in most circles. Uh, church was thought of as a force for good. Everybody knew that there, there have always been hypocritical exceptions to that, but until very recently, Christianity was thought of as a, as a good thing in the world. But today, it's common for our neighbors to see Christianity as a force for, for evil in the world. And this is a brand new situation that many of us find ourselves in. And now some of that change in perception has been understandable. Uh, because there's, there's now social media, there have been massive abuse scandals and cover-ups in churches that have been exposed. And so the world has rightly seen that a lot of evil has been done in the name of Christianity. And it took the advent of social media for it to finally be known and, and rooted out. And so that's one big reason the perception of Christianity has changed. And honestly, we dug our own grave there. But then alongside that, overdue and needed exposure, there's also been a huge shift in society's ethics and morals. And much of Christian morality is now seen as evil, specifically when it comes to issues of sexuality and gender. 
Christians are thought of as evil people who believe things that would be bad for society, particularly because Christians can't sign off on new views of gender and sexuality and marriage. And so Christians are thought of as people who hold evil views. And then on top of that, there's a constant wave of false accusations where social media has allowed people to finally shed light on truth and get word out there about horrible things that were happening, but it's also allowed false, false accusers to come along and slander and deride Christians. A couple weeks ago, I was at a pastor's meeting in Louisville, and there was a, a moment at like a breakout session where we went around the table, and it was all lead pastors of different churches from around the country. And as we went around the table, every single one of those guys I was sitting at the table with told stories of how they were slandered on social media, completely, complete lies spread about them on social media just this year. And this is not just pastors who are experiencing that, but Christian leaders in workplaces, Christian leaders in academia, they're, they're facing that reality regularly. And this is really new to us. Now, it's never been rare around the world for Christians to be thought little of, and it's definitely not a new phenomenon in history, but it feels really new to us. And the people that Peter was writing this letter to were living in an empire that was increasingly seeing Christians as evil and damaging to their empire. Christians were called atheists because they refused to, to believe and worship the, the Roman gods. They were accused of cannibalism um, with stories going around of how they would eat their young when they would meet together. They were accused of treason because they were undermining the strength of the Roman empire by, by introducing these new gods. They were slandered, they were misunderstood, sometimes that was deliberate. They were mistreated by a brutal government that opposed them. And, and I don't for a second think that it's this bad for us here. I mean, the Roman Christians probably would have loved to have the life that we have. They would have loved to have what we call persecution here. Um, I don't think it's this bad for us, but we do, need to know, we do need to know how to live in a world that's hostile to the Jesus that we hold so dear. How do we live in a world that in large part rejects our faith? How do you live on a campus where the faith is mocked? How do you go to school where there might only be one or two other Christians in the entire school? How do you live at work where there's a new corporate religion that's being practiced and forced on you? Maybe even at home where, where even your family members don't believe. How, how do we live under a government that's not for the faith? These are some of the issues that Peter deals with, and we'll talk about all those issues just in the next few weeks in the next few passages. So starting today in verse 11 again, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. Now, this is so important for us to start off with. He says to us, you're sojourners and exiles here, which means that the world is not your home yet. You don't fit here. That's absolutely true. You're right to perceive that there will be people against you because of what you believe. And he says, here's the war that you need to fight. Abstain from the passions of your flesh that wage war against your soul. Christians who, who live in a world where we perceive that people are against us can very easily come to believe that the primary battle that we should be fighting is against the people in the world out there. And we can aim an awful lot of rage at them, at, at those people. I can come to believe that my biggest problem is my pagan neighbors or my oppressive government or my being surrounded by people who have a completely different worldview than I have. But Peter starts this section by reminding us that the biggest war being waged against our souls comes from within. It comes from the passions of the flesh. 
And the way that the New Testament uses this term, the flesh, it doesn't just mean like the sins of the body. So he's not only here telling us to avoid physical appetites, like to avoid sexual sin. That, that's certainly included in the flesh. But the flesh in the New Testament is just our old nature. It's our old way of life, who we were apart from Christ. So even after we come to faith in Christ, we're still haunted by that flesh, we're still tempted by it, and we still desire some of the sins of the old way, which are not just the sins of the body, but just all the sins of how we used to be. Galatians 5 lists these out, and you'll see here that it's a broader category than just physical appetites. In Galatians 5.19, he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so fleshly desires are not just the, those desires of the body, but they're the desires of the old way of life. And they include things like envy and stirring up division and strife and jealousy. The flesh is our old nature, our normal way of living apart from Christ. And Peter says those things are waging war against your soul. You might think that your biggest enemy is the culture around you. You might think your biggest enemy is, is your neighbors, your biggest enemy is your government. But the biggest enemy of the Christian is always within. And as hard as things might get in some cultures, what's in here is always more damaging. My biggest enemy is me. My biggest problem is me. The biggest threats to my soul are my passions of my flesh, not my culture's corrupt values, and not the government. So we can get really angry at the problems that we see out there, and we can fight with a huge passion for the causes that, that we're for. We can fight with passion against our opponents, but it's so easy to convince ourselves that we're the good people and they're the bad people. And that if we win the war against them, then we've won. But if we think that our biggest problem is our culture or our government or our neighbors or even the lies that are out there that so many are believing, we're missing what Peter says here. Our biggest battle is always against our own sin. And it's important to have this rare mindset because nobody besides the scripture is saying this. I mean, talk radio says that the biggest problem is the other guy. The news media says the biggest problem is the other guy. Social media says the biggest problem is the other guy. My biggest problems are all the people, those people out there, and I'm at war against them. Nobody but the Bible is actually saying, watch out for the war from within. Watch out for what goes on in your own heart. If we start to believe that, that they are our biggest problem, then when we're in places where we could legitimately be spreading the love of Christ and the truth of Christ, we'll just come across as arrogant elitists. They'll be able to sense that we feel like they're the biggest problem and I'm okay. And that the solution to everything is if you would become like me, then you would be awesome because I'm just like the template of awesomeness. They'll be able to, to sense that when we talk to them. So he starts this whole section by saying, watch out for our own sin. What goes on in here is always way more of a threat than what goes on out there. And honestly, this is true for our homes too. I've known people who rightly have worked hard to protect their kids from the lies of the culture. They've worked hard to protect their kids from the sins of the world around us. But then at home, mom or dad or both have been angry or they've been bitter, punching holes through walls with rage, anxious, fearful. 
but then still believing that the biggest enemy to the souls of their kids is out there. And the kids end up not being protected at all. In fact, the biggest enemy to my kids' souls is always going to be within my household. My biggest enemy is me, and their biggest enemy could be those same sins that are in my heart. My heart. So, so whatever it means to live as an exile, whatever it means that this world is not our home, it does not mean that my biggest problem is out there. It can't mean that. And so this should remove all of the arrogance and all of the swagger from our engagement with the world around us. So he starts there. Verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So next, Peter says that we have to keep our lives honorable in the eyes of the world around us, even as they're calling us evildoers. He'll say something similar in verse 15. He'll say, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So if we want to see our neighbors glorify God, if we want to silence the false things that are being said against us, we'll do that with honorable conduct and by doing good. Now, sometimes we think that you have to fight their rage with our own rage, that we have to fight their slander with our own slander, that maybe we can silence them by shouting a little bit louder than them. They're jerks on Facebook, so I'll just up my jerk game, and then, and then I'll win, and, and finally they'll tap out under my rage and glorify God. It's not how it works. I mean, sometimes I think we see ourselves almost like Tom Cruise and a few good men, and we feel like if we can put together this really compelling argument and have that you-can't-handle-the-truth moment, then there will be this moment where all of a sudden they say, you're right, and they repent of their sins and trust the Lord and stop saying bad things about us and glorify God because we just argued them into it. But Peter says here that it's by doing good that we diffuse the libel. It's by doing good that we diffuse the slander. By doing good that we draw people to the glory of God. Madeline Langle writes, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. So Peter says the way that we silence slander is with good deeds. And now, to be careful here, he's not giving us a false hope. He's not saying that in all cases, if we're just nice to people, then they'll stop saying mean things about us. Certainly not right away. In fact, right there, he says they'll actually continue to speak evil against us, but they will see our good deeds. And if they don't turn from their sin now, if they don't turn from their sin in this life, and they may not, there is coming a time, verse 12, the day of visitation when the Lord returns. And they'll see him face to face, and on that day, they'll give God glory for the work that he did in our lives. We may win some people over with good works in this life. We may silence some critics in this life by doing good to them. But the sure promise that will definitely happen is that even if we don't win the argument in this life, on Judgment Day, truth will come out. And our aim in life is not to glorify ourselves. It's not that we would win the argument. It's not that we would be thought of as right now. Our aim is to glorify the Lord. We want any opponents that we have out there to, to be able to honestly say that Christians are the people who did good to them. And those good works may still infuriate them for now. They may say those good works are insincere. But on that day when they can't hide what's in their hearts anymore and everything is laid bare before the Lord, we want them to say, God, you weren't silent. 
God, you left me a witness in my life. And it was these Christians. You offered your kindness through these people. You offered the love of Jesus in tangible ways through your church. I can't deny how good you were to me in this life. That day is coming. Peter says, live for that day. If you want the foolish talk to be silenced, if you want the argument to be won, serve and love and do good. We're here to be a witness to the love and kindness of God and to glorify the Lord. And people who are living for that day don't have to win all the arguments now. But we are called by God, even if we we sense that our side of things isn't being heard, we're called to honorable conduct and to trusting that he'll sort it out. You say, oh yeah, I mean, that, that can't be our approach to really bad people, though. People who persecute Christians, people who do wrong to us. I mean, we, we can't say that this would be our approach. Well, listen to Romans 12, starting in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus said something similar in Luke 6, verse 28. He said, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. So we do good even to people who are against us. Even to enemies. And he's not saying to just not do bad things to them. He's saying to actively pray for them and do good for them. And this kind of life, this kind of posture is only possible if we live with the gospel front and center like Peter's trying to get us to do here. I mean, if I came to believe the gospel, that I was a wicked sinner rescued by Christ, then I can't see their sin as worse than mine. And just as I received a blessing from God when I deserved a curse, I can pass a blessing on to them when they deserve a curse. We have to believe this. We have to believe this gospel that says that the only reason that we're Christians is because God sent his son to die for us. It wasn't because we achieved something. It wasn't because we were moral enough. God didn't pick us because we made it to the top. He sent his son to redeem us when we were at the absolute bottom. And even our faith, even though I've received Jesus, it's only because God supernaturally opened up my eyes to the beauty of Christ and gave me the gift of faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. I didn't become a Christian because of something good in me. Then then I'd have something to boast about. Then I'd have some reason to feel superior to all those other people. But I have nothing like that. God designed the way that he saved us in such a way so that we would have nothing to boast about, which enables us to bless our enemies. And for us to live like that, man, we're going to have to utterly depend on Jesus because this does not come naturally at all. We like to see our enemies fall. 
We see it in mild ways. I mean, you're driving down the road and someone passes you going 120 and they go flying around the corner and you just think, wow, what an idiot. And then you come around the corner and you see that they've wrecked their car and they've gone off into a ditch. In your heart, you're probably not thinking, man, that is, that's really tragic. You're probably thinking, serves you right. Drive like that, you're getting what you deserve. We like to see other people get justice, not mercy. But God's called us to be the kind of people who love to see even our enemies get mercy. What kind of person does that? What kind of person weeps when an enemy falls? What kind of person celebrates when an enemy prospers? Really can only be the kind who's living with the gospel front and center. Can only be the kind of person who's becoming more and more like Jesus as they worship him. And we see Jesus who is perfectly loving even when he's being nailed to a cross. While he's being nailed up there, he's praying for the forgiveness of his enemies. This is the God that we worship. And as, as we do, we're made more like him. So this is a call to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping, even when they're enemies, and to desire our enemies' good, just like Jesus did for us. And honestly, we've got to ask if this is our normal approach to the world around us. Because I think that pretty often our approach to the world around us is, is almost like we've got two different personalities. Where on the one hand, we are, are kind to people, we're, we're welcoming to people in church, we're good to neighbors, we serve in lots of ways. But then we get on social media, and it's like we're a whole different person. I don't know if you remember the, the SNL sketch from the 90s, sketch from the 90s uh, with Will Ferrell, the get off the shed sketch. You can pretend you don't, it's church. Um, and so they, there's this sketch where he's barbecuing with some new neighbors that he's just met, and he is just over the top nice to these neighbors. Um, they, he's just introduced himself to them, they come in and he's barbecuing, he's talking about the golf clubs that he's buying and the beautiful weather and everything's very happy. And then he, he looks up from his conversation with his neighbors to the kids that are off camera, he says, kids, I need you to get off the shed. And then he gets back to his barbecue and it's a super pleasant conversation. Kids, get off the shed. And then back to the conversation, and then each time that he looks up, he gets louder, and he gets angrier, and then he starts screaming, and it's profane, and then he takes off his belt and says, you're going to get the beating of a lifetime in front of these people, and then he goes back to the really nice conversation with these people. And, and I can't help but think, we looked at that sketch, and we thought, that's our model for cultural engagement as Christians. Like, that we're, we're going to be really nice to people who come into church, we'll be real nice to our neighbors, tremendous acts of service and generosity. I don't think the church gets enough credit for all the good that we do in the world. And then we get on Facebook. And it's get off the shed. And it's like we've got two different personalities at work. But the way that we change people isn't by being louder. It isn't by being snarkier. It isn't by being more sarcastic. It's not by our mockery. He says that it's God's will that by doing good, we would silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now again, none of this should be taken to, to be me saying that we don't make a case, we don't speak truth. We have to do that. None of this should sound like we're supposed to disengage from the world. We aren't supposed to disengage at all, but we are called to do good in the face of evil. And when we do, God gets the glory. You say, isn't this naive though? Man, it is a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. Have you been out there? 
Well, not to get ahead of ourselves, but at the end of this section, Peter's going to write this in verse 22, talking about Jesus. It says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. So let's not forget how Jesus changed the world. He didn't return mockery for mockery. He didn't threaten anybody. Even when he was suffering totally unjustly, he accepted his wounds, he gave his life, and as Christians, we've all been healed by him. We might think we won't accomplish very much by being kind and honorable even in the face of insults, but Jesus was. And he accomplished a lot, and we're following him. And in these next three sections, Peter's going to keep going to unpack how we do good in specific contexts, in institutions like government, at work, even under unjust bosses, at home. And he's going to apply this principle of relentlessly doing good in a world that's against us really specifically to all of these spheres. And so let's read the rest of our passage again so he can apply it specifically to how we interact with the government. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So what's God calling us to here? How does the person who's been impacted by the gospel relate to the governments in the world and live in a world that isn't our home and where we don't really run things yet? Well, jumping around in this passage, one, we're respectful of and subject to human institutions like government. He says in verse 13 that for the Lord's sake, we're we're supposed to be subject to every institution, literally every creation of man. Man, this will definitely cause Christians to stand out in our day. Because in our culture, we see flaws and sins in our institutions, and we tear them down without building something in their place. We're living in a day where people destroy things. It's it's very easy to destroy, and it's very hard to build. And so in our day, we don't really build. Building matters less to us than, than leaving our mark, and so we like to tear down things. Proverbs says that a wise man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But in the lack of wisdom in our culture, we we tear down the inheritance that's been given to us and don't leave something for our kids. We, We destroy institutions. So we lose a job, and we ruin the reputation of our old company on social media. We discredit the schools that we graduated from. We don't work to improve and right wrongs of past generations. That needs to happen. We're just iconoclasts who who tear down and destroy. We look at all of our institutions and we say they're all just kind of suspect. They're all formed by unjust power dynamics. They all have sin, and so we, we tear them down. And we'll do that with government as well. Now, Christians might be extra tempted to disrespect government authorities because, like Peter said, we're not citizens here first and foremost. This isn't our home. We are free. So sometimes our attitude might be, well, I can just do whatever I want. I don't have to listen to these authorities. They're not the boss of me. Jesus is the boss of me. But Peter says that for Jesus' sake, we should be subject to them. 
So that means that as Christians, we're called to submit to even deficient governments because that's the only kind that there are. Our default posture toward the authorities is that we try to submit, we try to comply, we try to obey, even when the people in office are scum, even when the taxes seem like they're getting wasted, even if we think that parts of the government are illegitimate, even when we disagree with their decisions. Peter wanted these Christians in the Roman world to be good Roman citizens under a totally corrupt government. And he wants us to be good citizens too. People who are subject to the authorities and even serve them. And Jesus said this way, this is Matthew 5, verse 41. He said, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Under Persia and then later under Rome, government officials who were carrying official messages, like they were carrying the government mail, could force an able-bodied man to carry that post for one mile. So they could grab a a Jewish person who was not thrilled at all that Rome was there, and they could say, you're going to carry this with me one mile. And they hated that rule. They hated that they could be conscripted into the service of these people who were oppressors and occupiers. But Jesus told them not, fight back against Rome, don't carry their mail. He said, if they force you to go one mile, carry it too. So that means that our default mode is, is that we're not quarrelsome with government. We aren't scofflaws, we aren't anarchists, we aren't subversives. In their day, some Christians would have viewed being subject to the state as incompatible with the lordship of Jesus or their freedom in Christ, but Christ and Paul and Peter alike said, not only can you submit to the authorities, you should for the Lord's sake. So we wanna be respectful, we wanna be thankful for those authorities, and we wanna be eager to gladly submit to them because God put them there. They're they're able to punish people who do evil, so that's one reason to submit to them, but also they have a rightful place in in our lives. So he says, be subject to these authorities, but that's not all he says. Skipping around again a bit in verse 17, he says that we're supposed to fear God, but only honor the government. Now fear is a higher form of respect than honor is. So that means that our subjection to the government is real, but also it does have a limit. And this is super important because in these next few weeks, we're gonna be dealing with areas of authority and submission in a number of different contexts. And it's so important for us to realize that we don't give absolute unquestioning submission to any human leader in any setting. Submission is not absolute. There's nobody but God that we're called to submit to in every situation. There are exceptions to these commands to submit. So so we don't submit in all things to the government. Workers don't submit in all things to their bosses. Wives don't submit in all things to their husbands. Absolute submission belongs only to God. We, We fear God, but then we honor the other authorities. And Peter says to submit to the institution of government, to honor the emperor who has legitimate authority, but do it all for the Lord's sake. Which means that if the Lord's commands clash with the government's commands, then we fearlessly submit to the Lord and disobey that command to sin from the government. We fear God and we honor the government. Now, part of our honoring in verses 13 and 14 is that we do recognize the rightful role of human government. He does say that we submit to the emperor as supreme, that the emperor is a supreme human leader, not the supreme leader, but he's supreme over the other human leaders. 
There is a supreme human governmental authority in every nation. I would argue that in our nation, it's the Constitution. But then under that supreme authority, there are other legal authorities. Governors, in verse, verse 14, he says, we're sent by God to punish evil and to praise good. And so they do have a legitimate God-given role. So we honor everyone, in verse 17, recognizing that civil government was instituted by God for good. Now, if that was true under the Roman Empire, it's also true under ours. He doesn't say here that human government is a necessary evil. He says that it's a God-ordained institution. So we should treat it that way. Another way we handle living in this world where we're, we're not in charge is he says, and it seems out of place in verse 17, that we're supposed to love the brotherhood which is really weird. All these other verses are about how we relate to the government, how you relate to the emperor, to the, to the governors, how you interact in, in the political sphere. And then right in the middle of it, he just drops this, love the brotherhood, love the Christians. And it's probably here because this is going to be needed for these Christians who are living in a difficult world. And these people that Peter's writing to very soon are going to be losing land and properties, and many of them are going to be losing their lives. They're going to need each other. They're going to need their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're going to need to love one another. And there's a real temptation sometimes when all of culture frowns at, at Christians to distance ourselves from Christians, to pretend that I'm not one of them, where, where we kind of almost go into Peter mode when Jesus is going to the cross. Yeah, I don't know that guy. Now, in Peter's case, it was never justified for him to deny the Lord. Sometimes I see Christians on Facebook, and I want to say, like, I'm a Buddhist. Um, like, I, I want to distance myself from those people. But he says, love the brotherhood. Love them. Go deep with them. When Christianity is mocked, love Christians. When Christians lose because they're Christians, love them, serve them, give to them. We need that in the midst of this world. In verse 16, he, he gives us a, an interesting dynamic. He says that we live as free people but people who use our freedom to serve. So again, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So we have a unique relationship with government and with any other human institution where we're in them and we're under them, but we're totally free from them because they don't ultimately own us. We're not the property of government. You're not the property of your boss not the property of your, of your workplace. We are free. So we don't submit because the government owns us. We, we don't submit because they're the ultimate authority in our life. They're not. We also don't submit just because we fear what they can do to us because the worst that any person can do to us is kill us and then we'll be fine. So as Christians, we really are free from all of these institutions and it would be really easy for us to use that freedom to reject them, but he says to use that freedom to serve them. We use our freedom to, to gladly submit as an act of service to God. Yes, we're free. We're free to serve. So we look for ways to do good. We look for ways to do good to government, to neighbor. In verse 15, he says to do good, to silence their ignorant talk. But then about six more times in 1 Peter alone, he tells us to do good, do good, do good. Our posture toward even unjust people around us, people who don't believe, people who don't like the things that we believe, is to do good, to love, and to serve. And that includes our posture toward government. When the Westminster Catechism tried to sum up all that's required of Christians in their demeanor toward authorities, it said this. It said, 
The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to defense and maintenance of their persons and authority according to their several ranks and the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities, covering them in love so that they may be an honor to them and to their government. It's a really different posture than a, a scoff law that, that wants to overthrow. But it's also a really different posture than the person who says that my government is God and I have to do everything that they say. We're free, and we use our freedom to serve. That's a high calling on Christians living in a fallen world. And, and we hear this, and we all know that we've fallen short. I mean, how many of us can say, even just from what we've talked about today, that we've measured up? We've been angry with our neighbors. We've had rebellious hearts toward authority. We've defamed institutions. So as usual, our only hope is the gospel. That Jesus Christ came and lived a perfectly pure and holy life. Jesus Christ came and was perfectly submitted to his father. Jesus came and he didn't obey any sinful commands of, of any human authorities, but he laid down his life for them. So our only hope is that, that Jesus is our righteousness. That he stepped in and took our place and his righteousness is credited to our account as we come to believe the gospel in all of our sins, all of our failures, we're nailed there to him at the cross, and if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As usual, Jesus is our only hope. So let's take a minute now to, to pray, to confess our sins to him, to, to talk over these things with God in silence, and then after a minute, I'll close us. Father, you alone are worthy of our reverence and our fear and our honor and our praise. We belong to only you because you made us. You deserve all of our lives because your will gives us life and gives us our purpose. We're yours. You've left us here in this world and given us countless opportunities to do good regardless of how much we lack, regardless of how much pressure we're under, day after day you provide opportunities for us to serve and for us to do good. You've called us to, in freedom, submit to government. But we confess that we're very prone to give way to rebellious and arrogant and selfish hearts that dishonor the people that you've commanded us to respect. So forgive us for this sin. Forgive us for not doing all the good that you've put in front of us to do. We confess this to you and, and we thank you for the perfection of Jesus. Thank you that Jesus honored you with flawless obedience and reverence. Thank you that Jesus respected even those who disrespected him. 
Cover us with his goodness. Clothe us in his righteousness. Look at us and see him. And Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would form our hearts into the likeness of the heart of Jesus. We pray that you deliver us from unloving, disrespectful hearts. Humble us. Help us to love and honor imperfect and even sinful authorities. Help us to give thanks for the authorities that were given by God for our good. Help us never to sin in response to their commands, but make us people who are willing to go the extra mile to honor them and obey as much as possible. Make us spirit-filled servants in this world where you've left us. For this to happen, your spirit has to do that work. And so we're dependent on you, we're needy, and we ask you to do it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.